I'm Judge Lois Haight. I'll be the moderator of the panel today. Bringing terrorists to justice, how do we do it so that we can protect our citizens, our state, our human rights, and the rule of law? Terrorists recognize the rights of no one. They work in the dark to pl plan mass murders and loss of innocent life with no particular target except the state. They wear no uniform. They carry no arms in plain sight and an answer to no identifiable governmental structure. They have struck the United States many times in the past, in the past few years, both abroad and at home, and they are planning today, as we sit here, more attacks on the United States on a more deadly scale using atomic and biological weapons. Weapons that are becoming more and more available, especially with the reluctance of the United Nations and the world community to stop their spread, certainly in Iran and North Korea. Can we deal with this question and many questions through our criminal justice system, or will it shatter under the strain? Uh, to answer these questions and many more today, I have a very distinguished panel I would like to introduce. I'll give you a little bit of the format. They'll speak for approximately 10 minutes. They will then have some time to rebut what others have said, if they possibly are going to rebut. Jennifer, I don't know. What do you think? And then we will take questions. I do ask you to make them questions, uh, not speeches. Um, I will be tough on the questions, and being a judge, I can object, I can object and sustain my own objections. <laughs> I don't get to do that a lot. Uh, first, we have John, Judge uh, Ken Karras. He is a United States District Judge for the Southern District of New York. He graduated from Georgetown University with a BA, and he received his JD degree from Columbia University School of Law. Due to my age, I never ever say the date they graduated because I don't like people telling when I graduated. He also served as an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York and chief of the Organized Crime and Terrorism Unit until his departure from the office in 2004 to become a judge. While at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Judge Karras worked on numerous terrorism investigations into the associates of several terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and the IRA. He was part of a team of prosecutors who in 2001 convicted four of Osama bin Laden's followers for their role in the August 1998 bombings of the American embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. He also participated in the prosecution of Zakaris Massawi, who pled guilty to being part of several conspiracies that involved the September 11th terrorist attacks. Judge Karras has been the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award and the John Marshall Award from the Justice Department. And in 2001, he was named Federal Law Enforcement Association's Prosecutor of the Year. Jennifer Daskal joined the Human Rights Watch in October of 2005 as Advocacy Director of U.S. Programs. She comes from the Public Defender's Office Service in the D District of Columbia, and here she argued many cases before the D.C. Court of Appeals. Her Washington, D.C. experience also includes the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the Council of Economic Advisors, and the Department of Treasury. She graduated from Harvard Law School, received an M.A. in Economics at Cambridge University, where she was a Marshall Scholar and is a Brown University graduate. Ms. Daskal's work focuses on immigration, 
criminal justice, and counterterrorism policies of the United States. And finally, we have Kenneth Weinstein. He is the first Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division of the United States Department of Justice. He also served as United States Attorney for the District of Columbia and held two senior positions in the Federal Bureau of Investigations. He served as Chief of Staff to the Director, and he also served as General Counsel of the FBI. He is a graduate of the University of Virginia and the Bolt Hall School of Law at the University of California in Berkeley. He has handled many prosecutions, and the varieties include fraud, narcotics, public corruptions, murder, uh, federal racketeering, and violent street gangs. He also received the Director's Award for Superior Performance in the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1997 and 2000. Please help me welcome the panelists today. All right, our first panelist today will be Judge Karras. Judge Karras? Thank you, Judge Haight. Good afternoon, all. Um, I, I don't want to be, start off by being a stick in the mud, but I'd ask that the, at least my comments be off the record um, so we can have a nice, free, free and flowing conversation. Um, in, in addressing the question about the prosecution of, of, of terrorism cases in civilian court and really the subtext of whether or not this is a, a, a viable option, um, what I'm going to talk about is the experience that I've had in working on the terrorism cases I did when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, I worked on a number of cases. Um, sometimes they've been called the, the spit in the street cases. We call them the Al Capone theory, where we would go after people who we had some information um, but we couldn't reveal in court would be were uh, members of terrorist groups, and we would charge them with credit card fraud and all kinds of other non-terrorist crimes. I'm not going to focus on those um, because they're not they're not actually terrorism prosecution in the sense that terrorism charges were brought. But I'm going to talk very briefly about the Bin Laden case, um, which is also known as the East African Embassy bombing case, and the Massawi case, and go through some of the challenges that we faced in those cases. Because I think each of these cases, um, on the one hand, it could be argued that they prove um, that these kinds of cases can be brought in civilian court. And I think, on the other hand, it could be argued that they perhaps demonstrate the outer limits of what can be done in civilian court. Um, in terms of the, the embassy bombing case, there were some things about that case that were quite unique. Um, it certainly um, involved, as a percentage of, of the exhibits we put in, it involved a tremendous amount of foreign evidence, that is, evidence that was collected abroad, evidence that required witnesses from foreign nations to authenticate the exhibits which may, meant that we did not have the use of the subpoena power, meant that we really couldn't use um, the grand jury, um, and we really re relied on the good graces of our allies um, to provide not only the evidence but the information. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but that is trickier than it sounds because terrorism in this country has become a hybrid. It's become a national security issue. Um, back in the mid-90s when we started working on some of these cases, um, really starting with the World Trade Center bombing cases, from the standpoint of the Justice Department, of course, it was, it was a law enforcement matter, and we would deal with the, the criminal side of the FBI. Much has been said about the wall, and we would be working with the criminal agents in the FBI and not with the intelligence agencies. But outside the United States, terrorism was treated as a national security matter, and so when we would have to go beg for evidence abroad, we would not be dealing so much with the law enforcement, the police. We'd be dealing with the security services, the intelligence branches, and so forth. Um, and I, I can't tell you um, the, the number of people who broke out in hives when we would go asking for witnesses to 
um, introduce evidence into an American court um, and, and explain to them that they would have to have these witnesses be cross-examined. We'd have to turn over certain discovery. We would ask, for example, if there were any reports, um, explaining, of course, the openness of our court system. Um, I remember speaking to the head of one security service um, who spoke a language I did not. Um, I did not know what he was saying, but I knew the word no in his language. And I got that emphatically driven home to me. Um, and so that, that obviously complicated things. Um, and it does, I think, present an issue um, with any of these cases that are going to involve truly international crimes. The second thing in the embassy bombing case, um, which I think is going to become more common, is the production of classified discovery. Um, there were a number of items that we had to produce because of our Brady obligation, our obligation to turn over information that might be exculpatory, that would be material to the defense. And because it was a capital case, that would not only be uh, information that would perhaps exculpate the defendants, but also anything that the defendants could use in mitigation of the death penalty. For example, um, one mitigator that is often used is um, equally culpable or more culpable individuals who are not getting the death penalty. And, of course, lawyers who are representing people who feel that their client was less involved but still facing the death penalty want to get that information. And so you can imagine the amount of classified information there had been generated about al-Qaeda even back in the late 90s that didn't at all exculpate any of the defendants, but in fact inculpated others who arguably might not get the death penalty. Um, and there were other classified items that we were hoping to use not as classified items, but hoping to use um, once they were declassified. But if we want to use anything, we had to turn it over pursuant to our Rule 16 obligations. <coughs> and what that brought on was an interesting issue about um, security clearances for the lawyers. Um, some of the lawyers um, who were court-appointed lawyers, who were excellent lawyers, um, for very understandable reasons, did not want to have um, FBI agents running around their neighborhood asking very personal questions so they could get a security clearance. And to get a clearance, they were going to have to fill out the same form that we had filled out and that anybody in the government has to fill out. If you fill it out, it's the SF-86. It's a lot of fun. Um, and that got litigated. Um, and uh, Judge Sand, the judge who was presiding over the embassy bombing case, ultimately ruled that um, it did not violate the defendant's choice of counsel to require that the lawyers to get a security clearance, nor did it violate the lawyer's personal rights. Um, but that is one district court opinion uh, in what may be many others. But it certainly added a complication. There were a couple of other issues that I think were unique to that case, or really the beginning of, of what makes all these cases unique. There were, um, along the lines of the, of the foreign evidence, there was evidence that we introduced that was, at the time it was collected, the product of a foreign intelligence collection operation. Um, it, subsequently, the fruits of that were declassified, and we were allowed to use them. It was, a, it was a, a house search in Kenya and electronic surveillance that was done. The wrinkle was the house that was searched um, was occupied by an American citizen, a naturalized American citizen. And the authority to do the search at the time was done under Executive Order 12333, and in particular there's a provision in there, Section 2.5, that allows that kind of operation to take place with the permission of the Attorney General. Um, and once it was declassified, there was a tremendous amount of litigation over whether or not um, the, the fruits of those um, operations could come in. And in effect, because there was no warrant, whether there was in fact a warrant, a, uh, a foreign intelligence collection exception to the warrant clause in the Fourth Amendment. Um, Judge Sand ruled there that to the extent that the U.S. government 
had sought the Attorney General's permission, it was in Attorney General Reno, that he did find that the exception applied. To the extent that there was collection done before the Attorney General had signed off on it, he found that that was not in compliance with the Fourth Amendment requirement, but that nonetheless allowed the evidence to come in because he did not find it, he found that the exclusionary rule did not apply. Um, the exclusionary rule, for those who are not criminal practitioners, says that to the extent that law enforcement officers engage in an illegal search or seizure, the fruits of that can't come in. But um, there is case law out there that said if people aren't motivated to collect this stuff for use in a criminal court, then there's no point to the deterrent value of the exclusionary rule. Um, and so ultimately all of the information came in. Um, but there again, it's a, it's a single district court opinion. And I should add, by the way, when you all ask questions, I'm going to have to be very circumspect in, in my views. I'm giving you a history because that case is on appeal. Um, so I don't want to get into anything other than what's actually happened. The other thing and the final thing that made that case very complicated was security issues. Um, physical security of people in the courtroom, to be sure, but also security in the prison. Um, it was really the first case where the special administrative measures that the Justice Department adopted in the mid-'90s had been applied uh, in full force and effect, requiring that each inmate be isolated in a cell by himself, monitoring of mail, um, very strict restrictions on phone calls and visitors, um, limiting uh, third-party calls so that every attorney would have to sign an affidavit that when they spoke to his or her client, they wouldn't pass them on to somebody else. And the idea behind that was not only to try to promote security inside the prison, but it was also to make sure that any discovery that was turned over, that while not classified, was still nonetheless very sensitive, that the defendants needed to prepare their defense didn't get communicated to al-Qaeda. Uh, and the briefing that was done on this, both in the embassy case and the Masawi case, the argument was made that al-Qaeda monitors very carefully what it is that happens in these courts. And in fact, you may remember there's a, um, a terrorism manual that was found in England. Um, the Attorney General Ashcroft had it during one of the post-9-11 hearings. Well, that was an exhibit at our trial. And one of the things in that manual is communicating to the brothers um, on the outside anything that they learn. Um, that's turned over in discovery and whatnot. So we were very conscious of that. We had protective orders that the lawyers had agreed to that Judge Sian had signed off on. And part of the idea behind these special administrative measures is to make sure that while the government complies with its discovery obligations, it doesn't give free discovery to al-Qaeda. With respect to the Massawi case, um, the two issues that made that case, I think, unique was when, one was when Massawi went pro se. Because what do you do when there is, as there was in the embassy case, a tremendous amount of classified discovery um, needless to say, Massawi wasn't going to fill out the SF-86, and even if he did, he wasn't going to get a clearance. Um, and Judge Brinkman did something that I thought was very creative. What she did was she appointed, over Massawi's objection, the original lawyers who'd been appointed to represent him to, as standby counsel, and so that they were going to do the classified discovery review, and they were going to do all the motions that related to the classified discovery, including trying to get certain information declassified so they could show it to Massawi. Uh, and by the way, this is an issue that came up in the embassy bombing case. Um, but you can imagine the enormous amount of complication, both logistically and in terms of making sure that nothing that we did in the prosecution was going to undermine the broader effort uh, against terrorism. Um, the second issue that I think is um, uh, unique to the Massawi case but has also affected other cases is the question of access to unlawful enemy combatants being held by other components of the U.S. government. Um, and Massawi's lawyers, the lawyers that Judge Brinkham appointed, um, uh, sought access to these individuals. They got the classified discovery. They said, hey, this is going to exculpate Mr. Massawi, and it's also material to the death penalty. 
and there was a pretrial access issue, and then there's a trial access issue. And Judge Brinkman ultimately ruled no on the pretrial access, that they, the paperwork that they were getting, that the classified discovery was sufficient to meet their, um, the government's obligations for pretrial access. But that she did rule that there was a Sixth Amendment right to access to these individuals on Mr. Masawi's behalf. The government said no. It's highly classified. It's part of an ongoing conflict. This is intelligence collection, and we're not going to allow these interrogations to be disrupted because then we're going to jeopardize the ability of others in the government to collect actionable intelligence. So ultimately, what Judge Brinkema did um, is she ruled that these... um, this information was material, and she ruled that the substitutes that the prosecutors had proposed, which are allowed to do under this statute called the Classified Information Procedure Act, were insufficient. They were not enough to provide Massawi with substantially the same defense, and that's what the language is in SEPA. As a sanction, because what SEPA does not allow is judges to say to the government, you must declassify, the government still has the authority to say no, but then the judge has the authority to say, okay, fine, then here's the sanction I'm going to impose. The defense request had been to dismiss the whole case. Judge Brinkman said, I'm not going to dismiss the whole case, but I'm not going to let the government seek the death penalty, and I'm not going to let the government argue any involvement of Massawi in the 9-11 plot. So you can charge him with general trying to kill Americans, but you cannot put in any evidence and argue the theory that he was part of 9-11. That went up to the Fourth Circuit, and two to one, the Fourth Circuit reversed. Um, they, they agree with Judge Brinkman the information was material to Massawi, but they disagreed with her on the question of the substitutions, and they found that, at least in the abstract, that substitutions could be sufficient, um, um, could provide substantially the same defense to Massawi, and remanded for Judge Brinkema to work out the, the logistics of the substitutions, which she did, and as everybody, I think, knows, the case ultimately did go to a sentencing phase. Um, so I think what these cases show um, is that First of all, having, having worked on them, and I think anybody who worked on them from the defense side, any of the judges, any of the prosecutors will tell you, they're really hard cases. Um, they present a lot of very novel legal issues. There's a tremendous amount of um, logistical issues that have to be worked out. You have to become part-time diplomat. Um, certainly you have to uh, engage lawyers from all over the U.S. government um, and, and think very creatively. If you're a defense lawyer, you're a prosecutor, it doesn't matter which table you sat at. Um, and I think going forward... As, as these international terrorism cases get prosecuted and they are truly international crimes, um, I think some of the, the real questions in terms of the limits of this are going to be how much of the foreign evidence is going to be used. I mean, if, if, there's, if a case against a terrorist depends, 80% of the case is evidence collected from a foreign government, and they're just not going to cooperate. Um, they're not going to give the witness that you need to authenticate the document or the telephone intercept, then what do you do? Um, same thing with the use of classified information. Another issue that came up in the embassy case is what are you going to do with Miranda? Um, in the embassy case, a lot of the, the defendants were interrogated while in, in Kenyan and South African custody. Um, and under Kenyan law, there is no um, requirement that Miranda rights be provided, and they were in Kenyan custody, and they had no right to counsel. So when the FBI agents went to interrogate um, some of these suspects, there was a bit of a conundrum. What, do, what is it that you tell them? And in consultation with um, folks at the Justice Department long before Ken got there, the advice we were given was, well, you can't lie to him. So tell him that when you get back to the United States, you'll have a right to counsel. But here you don't. But you can invoke your right to silence. And the other Miranda warnings. Well, that got us in a lot of trouble with Judge Sand. Um, Fortunately, there came a point where um, my colleague, Pat Fitzgerald, actually did Mirandize. The prosecutor Mirandized. And the South Africans have their own Miranda warning, which is almost word for word the American Miranda warning. So we were able to rely on those. But as you can see, 
the international component of these things is um, very tricky. So the discussion I'll leave out is that I think that there are challenges in these cases, and sometimes they're foreseeable and sometimes they're not. And I think they do push the limits of what can be done in civilian court. Thank you, Judge Karras. I do so hate to stop another judge. I think you could go into auctioneering, though. You do speak fast enough. Uh, I'm going to ask Ms. Deskell to come on up here I, so you won't have your back to anybody out there, and I apologize for not mentioning that to you. And also, you can't see each other here. Okay? Why don't you come on up, Ms. Deskell? Good afternoon. I'm going to shift the topic a little bit, and rather than talking about the criminal prosecutions per se, I want to talk about the alternative system that was set up by first the Bush administration and then Congress most recently when it passed the Military Commissions Act. Um, the, the original title of this talk was Can Criminal Prosecutions Work? And I think it's interesting that very recently the Department of Justi Justice issued a press release where they announced proudly that they have successfully convicted and prosecuted close to 300 terrorism and terrorism-related cases since September 2001. Um, looking at those numbers, according to the DOJ's own statistics, a simple answer to the question is yes, to some extent, criminal prosecutions do work. By comparison, in the four years that the military commissions that were set up by President Bush were in operation, from 2002 to the summer of 2006, the commissions convicted no one. Now, we all know that the commissions didn't convict anyone because they were bogged down in litigation and ultimately struck down by the Supreme Court this summer in Hamdan. And now a new Congress has passed the Military Commissions Act authorizing a new set of commissions. But it's my guess that these commissions, with a new set of rules and a new set of procedures, will also be the subject of controversy and court challenge, further delaying the day that some of the suspected masterminds of the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history are brought to justice. And while I, like I think everyone here, wants these individuals brought to justice, and the victims of 9-11 given, given the chance to have the justice that they deserve, I also think that there are good reasons for some of these court challenges and for concerns about these commissions. And I want to focus what I see as the two biggest concerns about these commissions, the underlying justification for them and their jurisdiction. And to start, I just want to start with a very basic premise, that the procedural protections provided in criminal protections, and to a large extent mandated to the Constitution, although that varies to some extent, serve a very important societal interest. They protect society from getting it wrong, from imprisoning and potentially executing an innocent man. The procedures may at times be onerous, as we've heard. They may be cumbersome. They may slow down convictions. But they prevent, to a large extent, against major miscarriages of justice, and they keep the government honest. Now, to a large extent, the, the arguments in favor of the commissions that were first set up by the president and now authorized by Congress start from a very different premise. They start, to a large extent, from a presumption of guilt. In the words of President Bush, the men at Guantanamo Bay who these commissions were largely designed for are suspected bomb makers, terrorist trainers, recruiters and facilitators, potential suicide bombers. If we assume these men are who the government says they are, they're guilty. They're horrible people. And setting up a commission system, we don't need the cumbersome procedural protections because we know that these are guilty people. But I think that there's a real reason to question that underlying premise, even with the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And despite the administration's best efforts to repeatedly describe those men as the worst of the worst, there's been far too many military and intelligent experts, including former intelligence and military experts from within the Bush administration, who have questioned that narrative to accept it without challenge. 
Many have now stated that they believe that the Pakistani government and others turned over or sold to the U.S. a large number of insignificant Taliban fighters, or potentially even innocent people, even as it protected more important figures who had connections to the Pakistani intelligence services or the money to buy their freedom. In the words of Michael Schur, who had headed the CIA's bin Laden unit until 2004, quote, we absolutely got the wrong people, unquote. And if that's true, then the importance of getting it right or ensuring that we have enough procedural protections in these trials is essential, not just for the individual detainees, but to protect the public perception about these trials, both in the United States and around the world. And then this ties into my second point, which is about the jurisdiction of these commissions. While these commissions were, to a large extent, designed with an eye to prosecute the worst of the worst and designed with an eye to prosecute those in Guantanamo Bay, they're actually authorized to, to try a much, much larger category of indi individuals. Any non-citizen who falls within a very broad definition of, quote, unlawful enemy combatant, unquote. Now, why is this important? This is important because the Congress has expanded the jurisdiction of military commissions, which historically have been established to meet out what one could loosely call battlefield justice, to cover ordinary criminal cases that have always been handled by the civilian courts. And in so doing, it has blurred ordinary terrorism-related criminal cases. And in so doing, it has blurred what is perhaps one of the most important underpinnings of the laws of war, the distinction between civilians and combatants. And under the laws of war, there's a very important distinction between those who are combatants, who are members of armed forces, or those who take a direct part in hostilities, and civilians who are not directly engaged in hostilities. Deeming somebody to be a combatant has incredibly important consequences. Under the laws of war, combatants may be shot at on sight, regardless of any imminent threat, and indefinitely de detained without trial until the end of the hostilities. Now, the, MC the Military Commissions Act expands the defini definition of combatant to include not those who have directly taken part in hostilities, as the laws of war have historically understood this, but to include those who have purposefully and materially supported hostilities, even if they are far from the battlefield. And what this does is it turns ordinary civilians, such as an individual who sends money to a banned group, or a U.S. resident who commits a criminal terrorism-related act that's unrelated to armed conflict, into quote-unquote combatants, who can be placed in military custody and hauled before a military commission. And what this means in practice is that all of those material support for terrorism trial cases that involve non-citizens that the Department of Justice has successfully prosecuted could be taken out of Article III courts, and those individuals could be placed in military custody and subject to trial by military courts. And an even more disturbing and circular provision in the Military Commission Act specifies that anyone who has been, de been determined to be an unlawful enemy combatant by what's known as a combatant status review tribunal, and these are the administrative boards that were set up to ascertain the status of the detainees in Guantanamo Bay or any other competent tr tribunal is, a, is an enemy combatant for the purposes of the jurisdiction of the military commissions. And what this means is that once somebody has been determined to be an enemy combatant by these administrative tribunals, they, that individual can no longer challenge their jurisdiction in their trial. And this is important because the, the administrative determination that somebody is an, is an enemy combatant is not by any means a full and fair opportunity for the individual to actually challenge their designation. In many cases, the individuals, the, de the determination is made based on classified evidence that the detainee has never seen. Um, in many cases, a detainee does not have a chance to bring witnesses or evidence. And so what this really means is that the government's saying that 
Enemy combatants are who the president or the secretary of defense says they are, and a competent tribunal, an administrative tribunal affirms, and that this cannot be challenged. And this is an enormous expansion of government power to bypass an, an existing criminal justice system any time it wants to accuse a non-citizen of a terrorism-related crime. This is not just a hypothetical fear. Um, we have an example right now of a man named Ali, Ali um, Khalil Almari, who is a citizen of Qatar, who was in the United States lawfully on a student visa. He was indicted for credit card fraud, and he was just weeks away from trial. In fact, he was in pretrial motions proceedings. When, in 2003, the government declared him an unlawful enemy combatant, took him out of the Article III court, and moved him to a military brig in South Carolina, where he, has been held, he was initially held incommunicado for 16 months. Um, eventually, some lawyers filed a habeas petition on his behalf. Um, he now has finally been informed of the nature of the allegations against him almost two years after he was originally detained due to the habeas challenge by his attorneys. And the expansion of jurisdiction over individuals, non-citizens like Almari, the expansion of military jurisdiction over citizens, non-citizens like Almari, far from the battlefield, is not just about the specific trials that are used in, in the, the specific procedures that are used in the trial. They're about taking individuals out of a civilian criminal system, civilian jails, civilian courts, a system that we all know and that's been tested and tried, and placing those individuals in an entirely different system, a military system. Um, arguably, this creates a situation where any non-citizen accused of some sort of terrorism-related crime could be subject to really a second-class form of justice. And this also has really important implications internationally. And I think it's re important to remember that the rules of law not only bind us, but they also protect us. And once the United States starts blurring the, the distinctions between civilians and combatants, it puts U.S. citizens at danger. Under this theory, under this theory of unlawful enemy combatant that's been now enacted into law as part of the Military Commissions Act, Russia could justify the detention of an American aid worker in Chechnya on the grounds that Chechnyans are, in the eyes of the Russians, terrorists, and that the American providing this aid was providing material support to terrorism. And that American could be subject to military detention, military trial, and possibly, if convicted, even execution under the Russian military justice system. This is obviously not something that the U.S. would stand for, but this is a precedent that is set up by the laws that were passed by Congress and signed into the law. And I want to just end by highlighting what the President and many members of the administration and, and have said many times and that I agree with as well, which is that the fight against terrorism is to a large part a fight for hearts and minds. And if in the process of fighting for terrorism we jettison the very institutions we are fighting for in the name of swift, easy justice, then to a large extent we've lost that fight. Thank you. And General Weinstein, you want to come up here? Good afternoon, everybody. Um, what I thought I'd do is take a few minutes and kind of give a bit of an overview of our counterterrorism efforts since 9-11, our being the United States government's counterterrorism efforts. And if there's one theme I'd like to come out of my remarks, it's that um, the process that we followed over the last five years by necessity has been one of stepping back and looking at some of our preconceptions and some of the paradigms that we've been operating under 
sometimes for generations, and rethinking them, making sure that the ones that we've been working under actually fit the new circumstances of this war on terror, and if they don't, change them. And we've had to do that many times. Uh, and that raises all sorts of questions. And we just heard a set of questions raised about one of the paradigms that we have uh, we've dramatically changed, and that's the establishment of the military commissions as a, as a way of trying people for uh, terrorism crimes. And that's prompted all sorts of questions, and I think the thoughtful comments we just heard are, are reflective of that. And that's a good process. I think it's a healthy process because this is a time of change. Uh, we have to meet our national security needs. We've got to make sure we're doing so responsibly. I think we are. I'd like to take a minute and just sort of, as I said, run through what we've done over the last, pretty much the last five years since 9-11. But to sort of understand that, I think we have to understand where we were before 9-11. And you got a good taste of that from Judge Karras' remarks and uh, his firsthand experience with some of those high-profile cases, terrorism cases that we, uh, we ever tried. And I'll put this sort of simplistically, but I think you can, you can say that pre-9-11, our approach was, um, one, it was one that had much less focus on national security matters, much less public attention, political attention on terrorism as a major threat to our national security. Operationally, as Judge Karras alluded to, um, we took an approach that, uh, that law enforcement operations and intelligence operations were sort of distinct undertakings. They were done pretty much independently of each other. That was by culture, by organizational setup, where you had intel operations, uh, the bailiwick of one agency, law enforcement, another, but also by law. There was, uh, uh, as uh, Judge Karras mentioned, we had the wall uh, that prevented information being passed and coordination being affected between our intelligence assets and our uh, law enforcement operators. Uh, and also, and I can speak to this personally as a longtime uh, federal prosecutor myself, um, law enforcement followed a sort of traditional approach, a linear approach to prosecution. Uh, there, it, uh, we'd see there would be a crime. We'd think about how to build a case, go to the grand jury, put the, get the charges, put them together, uh, get a conviction, and that conviction was sort of the end result. The thing that we were seeking was a conviction. Uh, that was a very linear approach, works very well for most of our programs, uh, is not the ideal approach, though, to uh, counterterrorism. And let me mention, obviously, prosecutions is a preventive element of prosecution, every prosecution that we do, and we were thinking about prevention before 9-11, but uh, it, was, uh, it was an approach that changed uh, qualitatively uh, after 9-11. After, as I said, 9-11 changed everything. Uh, first, resources flooded to the counterterrorism effort in a variety of ways. Uh, there was overnight an intense focus placed on lifting those limitations on our counterterrorism capacity, our preventive capacity, those limitations that were not necessary, while retaining those that were necessary to make sure that our operations remained within constitutional and legal lines. Um, and the best example of that was what was passed 45 days after 9-11, the Patriot Act. Uh, that provided us a number of new authorities, but mainly it, it lowered the wall and actually mandated that information be shared between our criminal agents uh, and intelligence agents. Last, uh, third thing that um, I think characterized the major change after 9-11 was prevention sort of became the paramount watchword um, of our counterterrorism efforts. And that's not just semantics, as I said earlier. Um, we have always, as I said, you know, we've always looked to prosecution as a way of deterring and preventing. But the Attorney General uh, Ashcroft at the time said, look, prevention is what this is all about. We're going to use every asset, every tool we have to incapacitate uh, terrorists, neutralize threats, and prevent 9-11 from happening again. 
And we were able to do that as of October 25th, uh, 2001, because we had the Patriot Act, which allowed us to share information between our intel and our law enforcement folks, uh, allowed our prosecutors to work closely with intelligence agents. And that, let me just take a second to tell you what that means. That means that if we identify a threat, um, Ken Weinstein's identified in Wichita, Kansas, as having uh, some ties with uh, terrorists overseas. We know that, that Weinstein's picking up some bomb-making materials. Looks like this is a threat. What are we going to do? Well, what we do is we make sure that we have the intelligence agents from the FBI. They make sure they get all the information from the intelligence community about Weinstein. We know everything we, that the intelligence community has on him. We also get a prosecutor, have a prosecutor working joined at the hip with the agents who are trying to run down this investigation. It might be that Weinstein's never prosecuted, that no criminal tool is ever used. Do we have a cricket in the house? <laughs> is that me? No. Um, it might be that we never use a criminal tool at all. But if it looks like Weinstein's about to, to pull the trigger and set off a bomb, we've got a prosecutor who's been thinking every step of the way, okay, what evidence do I have that will support a criminal charge so we can incapacitate him when we need to. It might be that we don't pull the trigger, and in fact, we just keep surveilling Weinstein to see, try to get as much intelligence out of him to find out who his Confederates are, et cetera. But we have that prosecutor right there, and that is a, a fairly new innovation since 9-11, allowed by the, the Patriot Act. And this, of course, is the premise behind this new National Security Division, how the prosecutor's intelligence assets uh, work in, uh, side by side. This approach, the preventive approach has been successful in a variety of ways. I mean, we haven't had an attack uh, since 9-11, and I think that's attributable in part to very good work around the U.S. government. Uh, but there's still challenges. Um, and uh, the one challenge I'd like to focus on is the one Judge Karras talked about, which is the difficulty of trying some of these larger terrorist cases, or especially terrorists who are brought in from overseas, in Article III <coughs> courts. And he ticked off a few of them, but they're very real challenges. Classified information. Most, if not all, of these cases involve large amounts of classified information, evidence from foreign countries. It's very sensitive how to handle that classified information. Hearsay rule. Hearsay rule is a tremendous problem in a lot of these cases where you might recover evidence from the battlefield of Afghanistan or maybe from an apartment in Pakistan. And under our, our rules here, you're going to have to have the person who recovered that piece of evidence come into court and say, yeah, I got this compact, this, this disc or I found this laptop, or I found this uh, uh, casing diagram. That's often very difficult when you're talking about recovering evidence from a war zone. Uh, and we're operating in theaters of war now overseas, and that's creating the evidence that's the basis for a lot of these cases. Um, as <coughs> Judge Karras said, the ability to control the proceedings. Um, these international terrorism cases have a lot of, uh, you know, they have difficult characters coming through there. These defendants are looking to, to use that as a soapbox to get up in that trial and propound their terrorist views. And I believe that al-Qaeda manual that was recovered back in the late 90s, I believe it actually directs al-Qaeda brothers to do exactly that, if tried. Use that trial as a way of, of spreading uh, their jihadist rhetoric. Uh, and then security is a huge problem. I mean, the Massawi case is an example. I think I've forgotten the number, but I saw the price tag that went into just securing the courthouse, much less all the participants. Um, and that's a huge, huge um, challenge uh, to do these cases on a grand scale. Um, so military commissions, of course, is one of the answers. Military commissions came online for a number of reasons, but they do address those challenges in part uh, and uh, in terms of allowing hearsay to be used in a fair way to uh, give us a better way to control the proceedings. 
uh, enhance security and, and, and avoid a lot of the, uh, the disruption and the expense of, of uh, ensuring that, that these trials are done securely. Um, and also, obviously, classified information. They have rules that allow for the use of classified information, but also maintain the fairness of the proceedings. So the bottom line that I'd leave you with is that we have had to really take a look at all these paradigms and rethink them all along the way, and I've just ticked off a few of them. Uh, we used to think that terrorists would be prosecuted in Article III courts. Now we're looking at another option. I don't think it's an either-or thing. It's not going to be all one way or all the other, but there is a place for both. Uh, we used to think that there had to be a wall between law enforcement and intelligence. That wall is gone, and nobody is advocating that it uh, be resurrected. Uh, we used to think that law enforcement and intelligence operations couldn't be integrated, and now we have prosecutors and, and intelligence agents working side by side. We used to think that the FBI was and should be primarily a law enforcement agency. It should focus on the John Dillingers out there in society. Now you have an FBI with, I can't remember how many, but uh, hundreds of analysts, reports officers, producing quality intelligence products in a way that never did before. We used to think that the DOJ organization was set in stone. It had been set in stone for generations and would never change. Now we have a national security division that's uh, a radical change. Um, and as a prosecutor, I think I, I'm as uh, responsible as anybody that I always thought of as prosecution as sort of the end result. That's what you did. There was a crime, you'd prosecute, get a conviction, get a pat in the back and move on to the next one. Now I see that prosecution is merely one tool in the toolbox or one weapon in our arsenal to prevent terrorism. And if it's using the spitting on the sidewalk approach and prosecuting someone for credit card fraud or visa fraud or something relatively minor, or if it's doing a full-blown terrorism prosecution a la Masali, it doesn't matter. Prosecution is a way of incapacitating someone to prevent that person from carrying out or supporting others who are carrying out attacks. And if prosecution is not the best way of doing that, then another option should be pursued. So these are all ways, of, uh, all ways that we've had to kind of rethink our approach, and I think that's been healthy. That reexamination, uh, I think, has been a creative process. It's one that we're still, <coughs> is still ongoing today as we evolve our operations to meet the evolving threat. Uh, and I think it's a process that's been good for the country and good for our national security. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. This is pretty complex. <laughs> Judge Karras, would you like to have three to five minutes rebuttal time? Sure. Might you come up here, please? Well, I think by way of rebuttal, I think what I will do is leave it out, and then maybe we can pick it up with questions, is um, I can give you some reasons why I spent nine years of my life maybe doing something that isn't, wasn't a good idea, and then I'll try to explain maybe why some of it was. I think the point is that the cases that at least I were involved in, I, I really think that they've tested the outer limits. And as I said, the embassy case is on appeal. If, there are, if some of those rulings that Judge Sand gave the government in that case are reversed, then the case for tribunals may go up. There are a lot of people who are very concerned about messing with Miranda, for example, changing the Miranda warning to people who are interrogated outside the United States. There's no doubt that one of the issues on appeal is going to be the admissibility of that foreign intelligence collection operation. And if the court, the Second Circuit, agrees, and they also agree it's material to the case, then the case against that defendant, against Al-Hajj, is likely gone. So the sub-battle the sub is how are some of these issues in the civilian court going to come out? And the, the more successful that criminal defendants are, and maybe they ought to be on the number of issues that we haven't even thought of yet, then the more difficult it is to prosecute these cases in civilian court, which doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't try, and it doesn't mean, of course, that, that every case is going to be the same. 
Um, I think another limitation on the civilian court prosecution is a case where you have mostly classified information against a defendant that simply cannot be declassified. In the embassy case, we left all kinds of evidence on the cutting room floor because we couldn't get it out of the secure room. And I don't fault for a moment the people who didn't want to declassify it because even before 9-11, everybody was very aware that whatever gets revealed, whatever gets declassified, people have to live with al-Qaeda learning about that. After 9-11, that becomes an even more acute problem. And so if the policymakers um, want to keep this stuff classified, but it's the only way to incapacitate somebody, to prevent them from doing something else, those are going to be the very tricky questions. Um, The openness of proceedings in the civilian court, there is a very healthy presumption, uh, First Amendment um, presumption for openness of proceedings in civilian court. But what if you have a foreign government that has a highly placed informant that is in the al-Qaeda cave and can provide information, but there's no way on earth that government's going to let that person come and testify in open court in the United States? What about using the hearsay statements? What about having a closed proceeding so that people wouldn't be able, uh, outside the, the, the trial, to see that person? Very difficult issues. On the other hand, on the other hand, civilian courts, in some respects, have to be an option. And I, and I agree with Ken as a former prosecutor. Of course, I, you know, when I was prosecuting, I, I believed in prosecutions. But I can tell you that those of us who did this back in the 90s before bin Laden and al-Qaeda became a punchline on Letterman, we were very much of the view that prosecution should only be an arrow in the quiver and that there should be other options. But our job was not to mix the colors. Our job was to paint. Our job was to prepare a case. And if the policymakers decided to prosecute, fine. If they didn't, fine. But the one thing about the tribunals is if, if somebody is caught in Switzerland or in France or in the United Kingdom, they are not going to render or extradite those people for a trial in the tribunals. Um, the, the embassy bombing case, there were three people whose extradition we sought from London. The case went all the way up to the House of Lords and on cross appeals. And one of the things that the Lords said unanimously was, in affirming the extradition order, these defendants are going to be tried in the Southern District of New York and not in any tribunal. The European Court of Human Rights is not only going to bar some of these countries from extraditing for prosecution in in tribunals, they're going to bar their law enforcement and security agencies from letting U.S. um, prosecutors use this information, potentially, in tribunals. I, I can tell you in the Massawi case that a number of European countries said, we're not going to honor your treaty request for evidence if you are going to seek the death penalty against Massawi. So in terms of looking at this from the standpoint of having arrows in the quiver, the one thing about civilian prosecutions is that they, are, they may be the only option to prevent or to incapacitate, depending on where an al-Qaeda person or some other terrorist is found uh, and, and what it is that ultimately wants to be done. Um, and then I think that the final thing, and I'll, I'll end before I'm, I'm thrown out here, is that one thing we really haven't discussed in terms of the tribunals versus the civilian courts is how do you deal with the use of hearsay evidence? How do you deal with classified information? How far is the Confrontation Clause right going to go to some of these defendants, whether they're tried in a civilian court or the tribunal? What are we going to do about Miranda? What are we going to do about the exclusionary rule? Um, How much is Crawford going to apply? These are all issues that have not come up quite as much in the cases that I prosecuted, but one can easily see them coming up in future cases wherever they are brought. Thank you. Ms. Desk, do you want I just want to say a couple of things about civilian courts versus military commissions, and that is that I think that all of the concerns and the critiques and the worries about trying tough cases in civilian courts are very 
important and, and really need to be worked out. But I don't, but my concern is that the alternative of setting up an alternative system that has the capacity to sweep in many more people than the high-level terrorists that we're talking about when we're thinking about designing these courts sets a very dangerous precedent about expansion of presidential power, about executive overreaching without the appropriate checks and balances. Um, and I just think it's also interesting that in the commissions that were set up by Congress, actually the classified evidence rules, at least for how evidence is introduced in trial, is not that dissimilar from the classified evidence rules in civilian courts. Um, there was a huge fight over this, and actually Senator Graham led the charge and said that I will not pass laws that would allow a defendant to be convicted based on secret evidence. And so any evidence that's presented to the fact finder must also be presented to the defendant in military commissions. And that was a compromise that, that was worked out and that was agreed to, and there was a decision that nobody should be convicted based on evidence that they cannot see. And like in civilian courts, prosecutors in military tribunals can use alternatives. They can use substitutes. They can use redacted forms of evidence. They can use summaries of what the classified evidence would prove. Um, but I, I think that that's an interesting point, that they're, that they're not that far off. Um, and I mean, I think that the list of particular issues, go, we can go on and on and on about them. But I, in terms of the hearsay rules in the military commissions, I actually I do think that this is an area to be concerned about. Um, the hearsay rules in the commission have a very broad latitude for allowing in hearsay, which in and of itself I don't think is a problem. But they put the burden on the defendant to establish that the hearsay is unreliable, rather than having the judge act as the gatekeeper without having the defendant to have to prove it to the judge. And I think that that creates, um, it's almost an impossibility for a defendant who has very, particularly in military tribunals, who has very limited access to discovery and to evidence to actually be able to prove affirmatively that the hearsay um, is unreliable. Um, and I think that that's a particular rule that it, I think is troubling in the military commissions. Okay. Thank you. General Weinstein, do you have anything you want to add? No, I'm good. Well, I'd like to open this up to some questions. Some of you must surely have something. This is rather a complot. Oh, my. <laughs> Two quick questions. One Strap first for Ms. Daskal. Your, your, your presentation seems to be premised on the view that military tribunal is somehow a new concept, when in fact, as it pointed out, it's been existing since even before the Constitution was written, dating back to French and Indian Wars. So is it your, are you objecting to any, under any circumstances, or is it too broad? The second thing... What, wait, for, uh, just one question sure. at a time. Can I... All right. <laughs> No, I agree with that. I think that their military commissions do serve an important, they can serve an important function. If they're created right, they, they, they are an important form of justice in certain circumstances. The problem here is that they're not, military commissions have historically been used in three situations, during an occup, occupation, when there's martial law, or to dispense um, basically what, what's loosely known as battlefield justice during, during the time of a law, during an armed conflict. Here we have commissions that are set up that could capture civilians who are not in any way connected to an armed conflict in any understanding of international law, and that's the concern. Thank All right, I'm going to let the gentleman behind you ask the next question. Then you can line up again. I just want to make sure everybody gets to ask the question. Yes, sir. All right, you began your remarks, uh, Ms. You're to Ms. Daskal. Yes, uh, by distinguishing between civilians and combatants. That distinction is not respected by the terrorists. They put their combatants right in the middle of civilians. And part of the problem that has been raised over here is trying people who are captured abroad. I share your concern 
about sweeping in, in innocent people. But if we go down this road of repeated attacks on military commissions, the fear is that there will be a spillover to the ordinary courts of justice because if the Musawis and the other people are let go because of our pristine justice system, there will be a cry for reducing the Miranda rule, for all kinds of protections being reduced in order to capture these people. That's the great concern. That's why we have the military commissions separate from the civil. Well, I think. Did, did you get a question in that? <laughs> Would you care to comment? <laughs> Well, I, I, I would like to say that I do think it's interesting that I don't know of any examples of high-level terrorists that have been let go, as, as you say. Um, and, I, and I think that... Um, Musawi gave us a lot of help. I'm sorry? Musawi gave us a lot of help. I mean, that, would, might, not, that might have gone the other way. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Do you want to still respond? All right. Can we get the next question? I'll let you off the hook. I'm going to address this to the whole panel. <laughs> Um, my question has to deal with the jurisdiction of the Military Commission Act. Um, I, I would disagree. I think that actually the, the law, aside from expanding the definition of who is eligible to be tried by military commission, it actually narrows it considerably from what was allowed under the laws of war previously and under case law. Uh, the act itself expressly excludes citizen unlawful enemy combatants. And my question is, in enacting that law by specifically excluding citizen unlawful enemy combatants, Padilla or Hamdi or Lind, was the administration and the Congress effectively adopting Justice Scalia's dissent in Hamdi, which says that citizens can only be tried for treason in civilian courts? Who would like to take it? General? You know, the short answer for me, and I'll pass this on to my um, esteemed colleagues, is, you know, I, I don't know. I wasn't part of the sort of decision-making process. Um, I mean, I found that to be a very striking limitation, uh, and my sense is that uh, it's, it's one that has, uh, that prevented many people from being critics of the uh, uh, legislation who otherwise would have been. In terms of the origin, though, of that carve-out, I couldn't tell you. Judge Carrot. I don't know if it's in response to the Hamdi dissent, because the, the initial executive <coughs> order that President Bush signed on, on November 13 of 01 creating the original tribunals actually also made the similar carve-out. Citizens were not, American citizens were not to be tried. So it's, it's whatever the thinking is, and I, I don't, obviously don't know, it wasn't part of the process, but I, I do, I'm pretty sure that the original executive order um, had a similar breakdown. Uh, and I also think had a similar breakdown in terms of combatants versus others who provide support. Right. I think that I think the answer to the question is it's a political one. I think that there was a, a decision that it would be much easier politically to pass this if it didn't include citizens. And in fact, um, from from my perspective, from Human Rights Watch's perspective, it, a, lo- a commission that was set up that would try both c- citizens and non-citizens, but limited the jurisdiction to those who were directly engaged in hostilities or took a direct part in hostilities, as is required, as as fits the definition of combatant under the laws of war, would be a much better system than the one that was set up. Okay. Thank you very much. And, and you're three-quarters of the way to answering my question already in, in the sense of, you know, where would you draw the line for saying what the scope of the military commission should be? I mean, do they have to be captured on the battlefield, or do they have to be captured overseas? Do they have to be captured in the country of their origin? Or if, is, you know, as, as they'd mentioned, you capture someone in Switzerland on their way through, is, is that enough? Or... 
uh, or are you just trying to limit the scope? I mean, where would you draw those, those lines? I would draw the lines according, in the way that the laws of war have always drawn the line, between the distinction between combatants who are t- taking a part in hostilities. And that doesn't necessarily mean only people captured on the battlefield. That can be the masterminds of the, of the hostilities, those who are providing direct support. But I would, I would, I would cut that off beyond what the law said, the, excuse me, the law that was passed expands that to people who have purposefully and materially supported. And that includes the, the person who provides material support to terrorism. It, it includes the person who has provided funding. Um, and, it, and it expands the jurisdiction beyond um, an actual conflict to anybody who's engaged in hostilities against the United States without some sort of time limit or limited to some sort of specific armed conflict, essentially adopting the view that terrorism is a war, um, which is, I think, a, a somewhat of a dangerous paradigm. Terrorism has always been considered a criminal act for the most part and has been handled um, historically by other countries as a criminal act um, and has not traditionally been considered a war against a nation. Would the combatant determination... Right. I'm going to ask the next one. Thank you. You can step back in line and ask another question, but I want to give everyone an opportunity. Yes, sir. Okay. In the original um, intro speeches, you drew a big distinction between how much more protection there is for criminal defendants in the civilian cases than in the military commissions. One of the theoretical underpinnings of the, of the civilian crimes is that it's better for 10 or 100 or 1,000 guilty men to go free than for one innocent person to be caught. Don't we have pretty much the opposite calculus, though, when we're dealing with those who would kill us by the thousand? I mean, shouldn't we be more tolerant of the risk of a few miscarriages of justice when the stakes are that much higher? Well, I think that was, I mean, I think that that was one of my points, is that I think that to some, ex- to some extent that's true, but I think we have, there's a misperception about who is necessarily being tried by these commissions, and we can't assume that just because they're in Guantanamo Bay that they are the dangerous individuals that, that we're assuming that they are. And so, and I think that there's been a lot of evidence um, and, sto- and credible statements made by former military and intelligence experts discrediting the notion that everybody at Guantanamo Bay is the worst of the worst in the al-Qaeda mastermind. Right, but I'm not, I'm not saying everybody, many. I mean, if we, if we arrested 100 people on September 10th and locked them away in Comunicado, 81 of them are innocent, and the other 19 happened to be the 19 who took those four planes down, that would be a horrendous miscarriage of justice for 81 people. But comparing that to what actually did happen on September 11th, wouldn't that be a, at least something we ought to look at a little bit differently than, than we would look at it if the criminal justice system generally operated on a principle like that? Would one of you like to answer that? Well, the, well, the, only th- the only thing I would, I would, I would say is that I, I think it's, it's important in this discussion not to blur, not to, to forget the distinction between detention of the Gitmo folks and the prosecution of them in commissions. Um, because a lot of what happened at Gitmo and is continuing to happen at Gitmo happened right after 9-11 and people were getting s- scooped up before anybody really sort of knew which way was up. And the length of their detention, all that, I think, is a very important topic to have, a discussion to have, I think, but it's a, it's a related but different topic. Um, and so I think that the question is, and I think what we're here to address is, how do you bring these folks to justice? Uh, and, and the cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court have distinguished. I mean, Hamdi dealt with detention. Hamdan dealt with the commissions. And I think that, in terms of our discussion, I think they're, you know, it, it sort of gets back to your point. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not unsympathetic to what Jennifer's <clears throat> saying. I mean, you know, there was a lot of indiscriminate scooping up of people. Sure. Um, and that just argues for figuring out who they are and letting them go. Okay. Yes, I'd sir. like to go back to that question that was deferred as too hard, and that's, that's U.S. citizens. Uh, is it a good idea to believe, it's just a matter of time before we have a homegrown jihadist, 
Is it a good idea to leave the question open? Is, uh, is there, what are your views on the availability of Article 1, 2, or 3 courts for uh, citizen terrorists? What are your uh, views, what are your preferences among those? I'll just speak for myself, um, just that uh, your question is, is it worth keeping an open mind to it? I think it is worth keeping an open mind. I mean, because as one of the points I tried to make is that we've had to be flexible as we've approached this war, and we've had to rethink every preconception that we came into it with. And um, so as the threat develops, we need to be prepared to think of ways of countering that threat. You talked about homegrown jihadists. Well, we've, you know, we, we do have concerns about homegrown terrorists, and uh, fortunately we haven't seen them, at least uh, in droves, and we haven't seen them actually undertake um, uh, successful terrorism on the homeland. But, uh, you know, well, we have, obviously, McVeigh, but since 9-11. So um, that is something, though, that uh, we would always keep an open mind to. But, uh, and we should. We should look at every option. Uh, right now, though, I think that um, the decision to have that carve-out in legislation was, was wisely placed in there. Judge Garish, Governor. I mean, I, I, my own personal preferences, I guess I'll keep to myself. What I would say is that there is the Justice Scalia view, the dissent uh, in Hamdi, which would suggest at least that he has some concerns about it. And, and in, in, in expressing those concerns, he's very critical of the Kieran decision. I think he says his exact wording is, Kieran was not our finest hour. But in Kieran, the Nazi saboteurs, one of them was apparently an American citizen. It, it, when the opinion's written, it says they'll assume it, 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 that he was, and they nonetheless upheld it. Now, you know, you know there may be differences. Um, you know, Justice Stevens goes through goes through in great detail distinguishing the situation in Karen and what at least the commissions looked like when they went up to the court in Hamdan, and we'll see if if the the act addresses those distinctions or not. Um, but I think that's going to be where the debate is going to focus: is whether or not Kieran's going to govern, or whether Kieran was wrong or is distinguishable. Do you want to comment on that? Okay, thank you very much. Next question. Hi, um, this is drawing on Judge Karras's point about the distinction between detention and um, the commissions. And it seems like since all of the debate about the commissions has come up, everyone's been talking about the procedural protections. And um, John Bellinger came to speak on campus the other day and was saying, I asked him how many they, prosecutions they thought they were going to bring, and he said between 40 and 80. And former um, Assistant Attorney General, uh, now Professor Hyman, said he heard 25. And so with such a small number of commissions, it seems like the more important question to me is what is the legal resolution going to be for the rest of the people who are being held in detention? And Mr. Bellinger couldn't really answer that, and I know it's a hard question to answer. I wanted to see if any of you had thoughts about how that's, that question is going to be resolved. I'm no expert on it. I'm not from the Department of Defense, so I really don't know the, the process right now, but I know that uh, they're repatriating a good number, and I've saw, I think just last week, another uh, a number of folks were sent to other countries. I think there's been a, um, a bit of an obstacle, though. I think that it's been hard to get some countries to take some of these folks back, and that's been a bit of a problem. Uh, they don't want them. Um, you know, some have taken them, but others haven't. So uh, I think they're still working through that. Anybody else? You want to comment on that? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. I think that's true. That there are a number of people who have been slated. There's over 100 individuals in Guantanamo Bay who have been slated for release by the U.S. government who have not yet been released. And part of it, uh, to some extent, that there there is some reluctance on other governments um, 
some of that is the result of the conditions that the U.S. is asking other governments to impose on the detainees when they return, and there's been a lot of negotiations and disagreement about other countries not wanting to have to be responsible for imposing certain types of monitoring and detention on the detainees when they return. Um, and then there's, uh, there is a large, a significant number that ranges between, I'd say, 100 and 200 detainees who will probably never be charged, who are not slated for release, who under the current policies will remain at Guantanamo Bay without a meaningful chance to, to contest any allegations against them. And, and that's a real concern. Okay. You're back. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, and this is for, for all three panelists. But to, <coughs> to, to follow up on your point, um, about two-thirds of those that were initially swept into Guantanamo have already been repatriated. Um, and those that are there are, are still there for a variety of reasons. And I think you, you talked about the, the hundred or so who clearly have sort of gone through the CSRT process but may never be charged. And the, the question is those are two separate issues. The CSRT is just determination of enemy combatant status the, and then the, the second is a prosecution for sort of criminal violations of laws of war. Do we think there should be the same procedural protections for both CSRTs and prosecutions under the commissions? Do you think, or if there are going to be lower procedural protections for a CSRT, what, what are we going to allow to determine their enemy combatant? Do we say it's okay for hearsay, it's okay for, you know, a lack of confrontation of evidence there, but not any criminal prosecution? Or, or do we relax that at all for a CSRT? And anyone's opinions on that? Well, I, I know that the, uh, the manual is being produced right now for the commissions, and it's, you know, it's being formulated, and that's so when that comes out, we'll have a little bit more certainty about what all the procedures are. But as you know, there's a CSERT, um, Combatant Status Review Tribunal, uh, proceeding for everybody down right. there. Uh, and um, that is... And, and some subset of those people then go on to be charged and then will go through the military commissions. Uh, my understanding is it's, it's a much less comprehensive um, uh, set of procedures to get somebody uh, through the CSERT process than through trial, which is what you'd expect. Uh, but it's a much, it's a less ambitious undertaking is to determine whether or not that person is an enemy combatant. Is that okay, though, I guess is the question. In, 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 you, in each of your opinions, is it okay to have a different level for a CSRT, which, if they're an enemy combatant, you may hold them indefinitely until, until such time as hostilities end. Right. Um, so do we think that there should be a difference or not in procedural protection? I think to some extent this problem was created by the administration because they didn't hold what, are, what was supposed to happen when you detain somebody in, during an armed conflict, which is Article 5 proceedings at close or near the time of capture. And at that, if that had happened, I think, earlier in the process, some of this problem would have been avoided and they would have sorted out some of the, what I would call mistakes, where some low-level detainees have been held for a very long time and may now be hardened by having been held in detention from the U.S. for five years now. I think that it's... The laws of war contemplate, and I think it's acceptable to have a different level of procedures and um, process for an administrative determination as to whether or not one is a combatant or whether or not one is a criminal, um, has, has engaged in criminal activity. But I do think that particularly given how relatively um, loose the procedures are in the CSRT proceedings in which, I mean, there, here, any hearsay, it's all hearsay, defendants are not shown that most of the, in many cases, the main bases of the allegations against them because they're classified. And so it's, it's 
in many cases, it's basically a rubber stamping of the government's determination that this person is an unlawful enemy combatant, which makes it even more important that there is some sort of independent set of eyes and independent check on that determination in the form of a habeas proceeding, um, which is another, I mean, what, we didn't talk about this today, mm -hmm. but what I consider to be the worst piece of the Military Commissions Act was, is stripping um, all of the detainees in U.S. custody, any alien in U.S. custody who's labeled an unlawful enemy combatant, the chance to have this case reviewed and have another set of eyes make sure that this determination is lawful, particularly given the consequences, as you point out. A de novo habeas, or? Um, habeas, I mean, habeas isn't, it's, it's the burdens on the government. I mean, the, the presumptions in favor of the government, and um, it would be a habeas proceeding like, like any other habeas proceeding. Maybe somebody should discuss the precedent and uh, starting with Yamashita and from 1946 and habeas. I don't know. I thought we weren't going to do dates. Okay. <laughs> do you have a response? I, I, I have no response on Gitmo. I, I, closest I got to Gitmo was a coffee mug I got from an FBI agent. So. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Uh, what if I this afternoon was designated uh, by the president as an illegal uh, enemy combatant? Then you'd be happy that I haven't asked your name. <laughs> <laughs> and incarcerated, uh, what rights would I have uh, to get out of jail, and how would my rights, procedural rights, differ from those uh, accused of aggravated murder, for example? Well, if you're a citizen, um, you could file a habeas claim. If you're not a citizen, you can't. I mean, if, if you're a non-citizen um, and you are labeled an unlawful enemy combatant by the president, um, you theoretically can be put into military custody indefinitely um, without any review of that determination. Well, I guess that before we get to uh, habeas, is there anything that I can do? Am I just locked up? I mean, uh, yes. there, is no, there, there is no procedure, no process, no confrontation, no lawyer, no nothing under the Bush uh, plan. Yes. Next. Can you all hear, by the way? Can you hear the questions and the answers? All right. They're slowing down? We, you, oh, you want them to perk up? Oh. <laughs> Whatever I can do. Oh, I wish I could. <laughs> I'm just the moderator. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, this question is from Ms. Daskal, but if the others have any comments, obviously I'd like to hear them. Um, what was that? I said if the, this is mainly from Ms. Daskal, oh, but if okay. the other panelists have obviously any comments, I'd like to hear those too. Okay. Um, in your discussion about the problem with the breadth of the definition of, um, of combatant, and here I'm uh, talking about it for the purpose of the Military Commissions Act as opposed to the question of detention, uh, uh, and you seem to uh, indicate that there should be a very direct participation in the war crime. Now, that's quite inconsistent with the position that the NGO community is taking with respect to um, human rights violations, particularly on the alien tort statute litigation, but it's not happening just under the ATS, but it's under, uh, you're seeing these theories pushed in, by Europeans and so forth. So that almost a being present at the time of the human rights violation is sufficient to um, inflict at least civil liability on a corporation, for example. Well, I think, I, I don't know, I think that there's two different concepts that are being somewhat confused here. One is the question of who, of the definition of combatant. And the combatant has 
important consequences in the laws of war. Combatants can be shot on sight. They can be detained without charge until the end of hostilities. And combatants have always been defined under the laws of war um, as people who have engaged in hostilities or taken a direct part in hostilities. There's a separate question of who can be prosecuted and held held criminally accountable. And then we have theories of conspiracy and material support of terrorism that allows us to get at a much broader range of people than would fall in the definition of combatants. And that's one of the problems here is that those two concepts have been merged. And that's the biggest problem. That, that's what is creating the problem here. Do you have anything to comment? Yes, sir. Uh, my question is for any of the panelists. I wanted to see if any of you had <clears> – <throat> any type of meaningful definition of what a cessation of hostilities would be for the current conflict, however, you know, whatever name you want to give it, or if you're aware of anyone else that has done any thinking or writing on that. That's a good question. General? That's a very good question, and I, I don't. The bottom line is I, I don't have a definition of it, um, and uh, not steeped in the law of war. I'm not sure how it's been defined uh, in the past, but this is a very different war from the wars that we've dealt with before. It's very much a war, and, I mean, that's one thing we have to remember. We're dealing with a war situation in which there is armed conflict going on in the theaters where we're finding these people. Um, but it's an, it's an irregular war. I mean, it's a war against terrorist organizations and individual terrorists who are connected to greater or lesser degrees but who are bent on trying to destroy us. So the threat is every bit as real as the threat that we faced in conventional wars, but it's not the situation where when Berlin falls, we know that the war is over. Uh, this is a, a different kind of situation. And uh, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, we're not dealing with a unitary sort of monolithic uh, war machine that we just have to vanquish on the, the field of battle and then move on to peacetime. We're dealing with a, a network of people who are quite resilient. Um, and so I say that by way of just cautioning uh, everybody um, not to be optimistic this war is going to end tomorrow and won't be just won't end if we just get the top guy that's not necessarily the end of the war um, so it's a, it's a very interesting question with real life implications anybody else wish to answer that okay just to pick up on that point and justice sanders question to put them together uh, traditionally pow's were not tried they were simply held until the cessation of hostilities and then repatriated We've got a new situation here because these are not uniformed combatants. They are combatants out of uniform, hiding among civilians. And the question is, do we treat them as POWs or do we treat them as criminals? And as you know, the Carter administration approached the issue of terrorism as a law enforcement issue. The Bush administration has approached it as war. And we're really not clear yet exactly what we're doing. So we're trying to try people. The points that Mr. Weinstein raised uh, in his formal remarks are absolutely right, that this is a new animal here. And it seems to me that uh, we've got to decide. Yeah, we've got to decide. And where do you think this is going? Do you think that we're going to have the military commissions upheld? Or are we going to have continued attacks on them such that all these people are going to be tried in civilian courts? And we saw, if you like the Misawi trial, we're in for a real ride. The question is, where is it going? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think they'll be uh, challenged, but I believe ultimately they'll be upheld. Judge Karras? They're going to the District of Columbia, not in the Southern District of New York. <laughs> <laughs>
Nothing else Do you have any comment? Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, looking at potential constitutional problems with the Military Commissions Act, it seems like you, uh, Ms. Daskell, touched on one of them was the stripping or the clarification that habeas doesn't apply to non-citizens. And it seems there's definitely a problem with non-citizens detained or captured in the U.S. That's a major constitutional issue. Um, I wonder, uh, could you address that? And then the other constitutional problem, you said that... Wait, wait, wait. First, the first one you want oh. her to address is the question sure. is, did you get it? Well, well yeah, I mean, okay. I, the, the... Everybody, everybody. Oh, everybody. Ready. Okay, you're off the hook. Maybe somebody else wants to answer this. Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. The question about the habeas tripping is being challenged right now. It's being litigated in the... Um, District of Columbia Circuit Court and most likely will work its way up to the Supreme Court. Similarly, the question of somebody, the Amari case. The U.S. citizen who was detained as an enemy combatant would have no right to retain counsel? I don't think that's accurate under the uh, Commissions Act, is it? Um, a U.S. Uh, no, a U.S. citizen would, I mean, there's no, a U.S. citizen could file a habeas claim. Um, but it's, that there's not, un, I think the question was, was phrased, framed as if in a criminal, if you're arrested in a civilian court, you have a right to an attorney. Pretty, you, you have a right to be arraigned, and you have a right to attorney upon arraignment within 24 to 48 hours. That that doesn't exist in in this alternative in the military system. And so, at some point, some point after you've been detained without a specified date, um, you would presumably be able to file a habeas claim and see a lawyer in order to prepare that claim. But there's no there's no date certain or time period that says after a certain amount of time you get access to a lawyer like there is in the civilian courts. Okay, I want to thank you all. This has been an awesome panel, and thank you.